Good morning, everyone. This is J.B. Hickson with NBW Ministries, proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message from my studio beneath the sky, tucked away under the snow-covered tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you for joining us. It's Monday, January the 15th, 2024, and it is cold. My thermometer right outside my office says minus eight, and the wind is whipping around, and I am so glad uh, to have shelter and to be in this nice, toasty, uh, warm little studio. And I'm especially delighted to kick off the week this week uh, with a good friend and colleague, Dr. Randall Price, will be with us here momentarily. He's going to be talking about where is the Ark of the Covenant? And uh, that's a question that comes up a lot, and we'll we'll kind of introduce why that is and how pop culture has sort of made that uh, biblical uh, artifact uh, something of, of interest uh, today. But so excited to have Dr. Randall Price on with us. I'll introduce him in just a moment. Uh, but as we look ahead to the week, got a great week ahead tomorrow. We'll have Shane Booth back on, our technologist, uh, first time on this year. He comes on about every couple of weeks, and this will be his inaugural 2024 a podcast to talk about technological trends in 2024. Wednesday is World Events Update. I've got Pete Garcia on Thursday and Alex Newman on Friday to talk about uh, Schwab, Davos, the devil, all the stuff going on up there in the World Economic Forum. So another great week ahead. As always, I hope you'll catch as many of those as you can and forward them uh, to others. And I uh, want to remind you that you can find all kinds of free resources, videos, including my video uh, from yesterday at Plum Creek uh, Chapel. Yesterday, we talked about uh, a testimony of transformation as we continue our look at First Thessalonians. We were in chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, and that video is available on our Rumble channel and also uh, on our website. We've got lots of other uh, great resources that you can check out anytime at notbyworks.org. Well, as always, I want to start with a passage of Scripture, and this morning was one of those mornings as I was looking at Proverbs 15 that I started cross-referencing, and first thing you know, I found four or five verses that all kind of centered on the same theme. And so let's just uh, remember this verse throughout the day, and, and, and hopefully it'll encourage you. But uh, Proverbs 15, verse 16 says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. And it, it just reminded me that it's all about perspective. Whatever station in life you find yourself in, maybe you're struggling financially, maybe emotionally, maybe there's just some hardships and trials of life. Just remember, with the Lord, even the biggest troubles are a great treasure because we know who holds the future. That led me to David's words in Psalm 37, verse 16, a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. And boy, isn't that the truth. I would rather have what I have to the glory of the Lord than be wrapped up in all of the wickedness of the devil that is so characteristic in these great last days. And then uh, Proverbs 16 was the next verse that sort of my pages flipped to, uh, better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. And today there are many people that pile up materialistic uh, riches in an unjust manner, and yet we'll take whatever the Lord gives us knowing that He is just. Uh, Solomon put it this way in Ecclesiastes 4, better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Amen to that, Solomon. What a what a turn of a phrase there. Uh, better than 
Uh, better, better a handful with quietness than having both hands full and yet grasping at the wind. And finally, Paul told his young son in the faith, Timothy, in his first letter, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And so I hope today that as you begin the new week, you're focused on heavenly things, keeping your mind set on things above, and remembering uh, who wins in the end. This life on earth is just a speck on the timeline of eternity, but by God's grace, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, then you have the gift of eternal life, and uh, you will live forever in the presence of Almighty God and our loved ones who also know the Lord. So I encourage you today, place your faith in Christ if you haven't already. He died and rose again to save you from your sins. But uh, we've got a pretty exciting topic today. We're going to be talking about the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, for those of you who may not know, the Ark of the Covenant is that famous artifact that Harrison Ford discovered, and that's how it got famous. Not exactly, but that's what most people think of when they think of the Ark of the Covenant. So Dr. Randall Price is probably one of the premier experts on the subject. He's an expert in a lot of subjects. I still remember the first time I ever met Dr. Price. I had just started my career in academics. I was a young man, and by God's grace, God had given me favor in the provost of a school where I had been teaching as an adjunct, and I went full-time, and a bunch of the faculty members traveled up from Houston, Texas to Dallas to go to the pre-trib conference, and up until that point, Dr. Randall Price had been basically an esteemed name on the cover of a book. He's written 45 books or more, not counting all the ones he contributed to and that were comp <clears throat> compendiums of articles and dictionaries and uh, you know encyclopedias where he had entries. But in terms of monographs or maybe books that he co-wrote, he wrote several books I know with another friend of Not By Works Ministries, uh, Dr. Thomas Ice, but 45 or more books. And uh, so it was really an honor when I first got to meet him. And what a great guy, full of grace and knowledge. And we've interacted many times at various conferences where we've had the privilege of sharing the stage together. You can find out more about Dr. Randall Price at worldofthebible.com. That's worldofthebible.com. Two of his books on the subject of the Ark of the Covenant that are uh, out of print, but you can probably still get them on Amazon. One of them is called In Search of Temple Treasures, and the other one, Searching for the Ark of the Covenant. So, uh, Dr. Randall Price, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, JB. Good to be with you. Even on so, the cold. Yeah, it is cold, let me tell you. And you're cold, too. You're up in Virginia, right? Yes. And you guys are getting this Arctic, uh, whatever they call it. Uh, what's the temperature outside, if you know? Oh, we're just in the uh, very low 20s, so okay. warm compared to you, probably. Yeah, it probably is. I tell you, you know it's cold when our dogs, we have four dogs, and when they go out and they come back in in about two minutes, you know it's it's pretty cold, because usually they love to stay out there and run around in the trees. But uh, So let's start with, uh, for those who may not know, give us a, a brief biblical framework of the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, kind of talk to us about why it's such a... Uh, popular topic and a coveted uh, item? Well, the Ark of the Covenant is very important in biblical history because it's the way that God brought him his, his own presence down to earth at the time of the Exodus. Uh, when you read the first chapters of the Bible, God's presence comes and goes from the Garden of Eden, so he desired a relationship with man. And to do that, there was no problem initially, but when sin entered the picture, uh, when the fall of man occurred, then God's presence was removed. Uh, simply the picture 
uh, his coming for judgment to exile them from the garden. You have two cherubim, which are angelic creatures, uh, stationed at the east of Eden to prevent man from actually coming into the presence of the garden where uh, there was a sense of holiness or God's presence might have dwelt. So man is exiled at that point. There's no return to God uh, in the, the, the physical sense or return of God to man until we come to the period of the Exodus. And there, as God brings a saving work uh, through the Passover, uh, laying down the blood of a lamb uh, as a substitute for the sin of the people, and they accepting that by coming under its provision, a uh, very gracious provision, uh, then God brings them out. And that's what the picture of Exodus is, coming out, being brought out. And when Moses comes into the wilderness and finally through uh, God's presence comes at the crossing of the Reed Sea, uh, he makes parts of the waters, prevents Pharaoh's army from attacking, and then continues with the people of Israel in their wilderness journey uh, as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. But there's no place um, for his presence to rest. And so uh, back when Moses receives the Ten Commandments, he's given additional instructions on what to do to prepare this nation to be God's nation, uh, give them a sort of a constitution, marching orders. And so at that point in Exodus chapter 25, he gives them instructions on building the Ark of the Covenant. And the intention of this is this will be a place where his presence will come and dwell among the sons of Israel. So every time they're marching along and uh, the cloud is leading them by day, uh, the cloud or God gives instructions to stop. It's It stops, so they have to stop. And the stopping point is on top of a building, a building called the, the tabernacle. But the actual residence of this um, manifestation of God's presence is the Ark of the Covenant, which is within the tabernacle in a place called the Holy of Holies. And it's very interesting when you read in Exodus 25 how God gives this design. He doesn't just say to Moses, build this. Um, he, tell, he gives him a revelation of the heavenly court, because there we have a heavenly temple, and in that temple there is a heavenly Ark of the Covenant. So he shows him the, this, uh, this pattern. And in Exodus 25, I'll just read it here. It says first in verse 8, let them construct a sanctuary or a mishkan, or that's the word for tabernacle, for me that I may shekan, that's the Hebrew word for dwell, in their midst. So the tabernacle is a dwelling place, and the Ark of the Covenant is technically that place where God's presence will dwell. And then it says in the next verse, according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, so you will construct it. And then he tells them, and you read just over a little bit here, um, as we come to verse 40 of the same chapter, he says, see to it that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown you on the mountain. And so this is a picture of the things that we're seeing. We have a similar revelation given uh, for the construction of the first temple uh, by King David to Solomon. He mentions that in Chronicles. Uh, we have a 
very similar thing given to Ezekiel later uh, in Ezekiel chapter 40 48 when he is told given the details for a final temple so all of this is the way God reveals it but he does says, here's where I dwell I'm going to bring a bit of heaven to earth mm. and in doing so you make a copy of the things that are in heaven and put them on earth so it is not just a, a simple man-made structure but it has a divine pattern and in fact the word used in Hebrew for pattern here is the word tavnit. And it's a word that means model or blueprint or pattern or design. But the idea really of a, of a blueprint or a model, Moses actually saw something. And that something is what he, he gave instructions to Holiab and Bezalel, the two craftsmen who actually made the ark. Hmm. It's very interesting to come to Revelation chapter uh 11 in verse 19 and it talks about the temple in heaven was open and the ark of his covenant appeared hmm. so many people get confused by that i've had uh, people mention to me before um dr henry morris who was a friend of mine i wrote a commentary on revelation he put in there and said well you want to know what happened to the ark of the covenant it got translated to heaven there it is uh but the point is that oh that's the original and the one on earth was a copy of the one in heaven. So throughout the Bible, we have reference made to things like this. But the importance of it is not just that it's a box into which some objects were placed. We can discuss what those objects were. But it's a place where God could meet with man. Uh, and now, not as he did previously, just face to face. But there has to be a mediator. There has to be someone who comes between God and man. This is the high priest. He's only allowed to come into the presence of God uh, once a year at the time of the Day of Atonement. And there he comes before the ark, but only after the whole of the area is covered with incense. So his presence is removed from God. God says, no man can see me and live. That was true of Moses. It's true of everyone going forward. So we forget how holy God is. He's He's like light. We're like darkness. Hmm. Uh, when you come into a dark room and turn the light on, the dark disappears. And if we came into God's presence uh, as we are and saw him as he is, we would also uh, be deconstructed in that way. Mm. Yeah, it really is amazing how we've we've created a kinder, softer, gentler God. We really lost sight of reverence and the whole concept of the awe uh, you know, being in awe of God. So, uh, so just to kind of summarize and bring us up to uh, my next question. So, so God instructs Moses to uh, build this ark as a, a place for His presence to reside. They carry it around with them in their wanderings in the wilderness. It's uh, it's stored in the tabernacle, the mobile tabernacle that they would uh, build and move around. Uh, and then, as time goes on, it needs a permanent. Uh, dwelling place, so to speak. So God instructs uh, David and Solomon to build the first temple, and so that's where uh, the the Ark of the Covenant uh, resided. So uh, talk to us about the Shekinah glory and how that relates to the Ark of the Covenant, and then what happened as Israel's history goes forward and that Shekinah glory left? Remember, I mentioned the word in Exodus 25, 8, I may dwell in their midst. So the term there, that verb, uh, shikan, <clears throat> is where we get shekinah or shikana or something like this. 
in Hebrew, Shekinah, but it's the term of God's dwelling. So it simply means uh, the dwelling of God or the dwelling, uh, God's dwelling presence, whatever you want to call it. So all we know about that is that there are probably seraphim, which the word seraph in Hebrew is the word for burning, <clears throat> the surrounding like a column around this uh, <clears throat> manifest glory of God. It's not, it's not, God is everywhere, but this is a localization of his glory and the angels protect it. And in fact, <clears throat> when we come to the Ark of the Covenant, we have another angel related to that uh, Shekinah glory, and that's the cherubim. Remember I mentioned in the book of Genesis, the cherubim prevented man from coming into God's presence. Now we see them stationed on either side of the, the Ark of the Covenant on the lid, which is called the mercy seat. That's a place where the blood now is placed. And as God looks down, he does not see uh, the sin of man. He sees the blood that covers. And as a result, there is atonement made of and is purged of the guilt that is there. At least collectively, Israel was purged once a year from that. So the cherubim served kind of as guardians or protectors of the image of God. And when you look down through history, uh, every important kind of building, any kind, if you, if you go to Mesopotamia, you had these winged bulls um, guarding entrances of palaces. When you come to Egypt, you have sphinxes, the same kind of thing. Uh, Greece, you have uh, either winged lions or griffins, part bird. And so, um, even today, we have in monumental buildings, libraries, government buildings, you often have lions stationed at the bottom of a, of a staircase. Now, this all goes back to that original concept. So it's God saying, uh, I am other, I am more than you. My presence comes into your midst because I desire to have a relationship but we can't have it simply as you are as a sinner. We have to have a mediator that comes between us, and we have to have, I have to have <clears throat> conditions that safeguards my holiness, and that would be the <clears throat> Holy of Holies with its curtains that prevents man from coming to his presence, safeguards like only certain people able to come at certain times, uh, regulated holiness like this that existed in the tabernacle, existed in the temple as well. Yeah, you know, I was thinking when you were giving kind of the, the geographic history of, of kind of following that pattern of the cherubim, uh, we love New York City, and, and I grew up in the Northeast in grade school and junior high school, and so we've been back there uh, many times, and we've got pictures of our kids sitting on top of the lions at the bottom of the steps of the of the library there in Manhattan, uh, very famous, uh, famous uh, spot there, but... Uh, so, so yeah, and, and I find it interesting that, you know, Satan was a cherub, at least as best we can tell. And so there's this, you know, running theme, obviously, throughout Scripture that I've written and talked so much about of this cosmic struggle between Satan, who wants to be God, he wants to to occupy that rightful, I mean, that uh, unlawful place as in the seat of God's presence, uh, and uh, and yet uh, there's a cosmic war and battle raging that keeps him from doing that. It's going to climax during the tribulation period, and uh, that would be a good segue now to talk about how. Well, first of all, so at what point in Israel's history did that Shekinah uh, glory depart? from the temple and what were the circumstances yeah if you read in first kings chapter eight when we have the 
uh, <clears throat> installation, uh, actually, of the tabernacle within the first temple. It's all carried inside, stored somewhere beneath, and that's part of the rest of the story, you might say. And, and then it tells us that the glory of God comes in and fills the temple, and the priests weren't able to minister because the glory of God was filling the temple. So it was there until we come to the time uh, in which we have these violations, Israel's sin, um, even the sin of Manasseh, which was great. It re replaced the Ark of the Covenant with a, an idol in its place. Mm -hmm. uh, but by the time we come to Ezekiel's period, and this is just before God brings the judgment of the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the Jewish people to Babylon. He tells them uh, that, you know, his presence can't remain. And so we have in Ezekiel chapter 9 through 11, the, the ark, ark is not mentioned, but the Shekinah glory is mentioned as of leaving graduates, so almost as though God were continually given another chance, just restraining himself. He doesn't want to leave, but his presence leaves the Holy of Holies, and it's on the outside of the temple, threshold of the temple, and it goes to the eastern gate, and finally it disappears over the Mount of Olives. That's the last anyone situated in Jerusalem can see because the mountains hide what happens after that. Um, we do have the gracious promise of its return as well and it's going to return exactly the same way it left which is why jewish people are insisted upon the temple remaining in the same place or being rebuilt in the same place that it uh, once was because the promise relates to that exact return and return to the same place but uh with that you have the destruction of the first temple and now it just becomes a building no longer a holy place and when it's rebuilt uh, things have not changed. There has not been a restoration of Israel, uh, neither spiritually nor really as a, as a holy nation, because when you come to Ezra and Nehemiah, they catalog the sins of the people, uh, the violations on the Sabbath, uh, usury among their own people, uh, intermarriage, uh, just a lot of violations. And you can see when Haggai and the prophets come and and shake the people and say, listen, you got the, the foundation of the temple built, but it's been sitting here 15 years. You've been building your own houses. Let's get back to building the temple. You know, <laughs> God is more important. So because of that, the glory of God did not return during the second temple period, and the Ark of the Covenant was not in the temple. Uh, we have a first century historian called Flavius Josephus that tells us that there was a foundation stone within the Holy of Holies, and that's where the Ark had sat. But in the second temple, because there was no Ark of the Covenant there, the priest, the high priest, came in on the Day of Atonement and poured the blood directly on top of that barren stone. Hmm. Uh, so that gives us an implication. How can you have the Day of Atonement if you don't have the Ark of the Covenant? Hmm. Because it has to be placed, the blood has to be placed on the mercy seat. God didn't change his requirements. Um, if you want me to answer that, I can. Yeah, but, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Let's, okay. keep, let's keep them waiting for just a moment. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we're up to the first century time, uh, called the second temple, uh, because of Herod, you know, it was Herod's temple, uh, which he built over a couple hundred years. If I recall, or it was built over that. He's the one that just kind of finally finished it. Right. Herod began, began at about 20 BC, uh, and,
and finished it probably. Well, no, no, I'm sorry. He, he, he was. Oh, it was only maybe less than a decade in building because he had all the building materials brought to the site before he actually started. So there was a little deconstruction that took place on the existing second temple, and then he rebuilt it uh, larger and more magnificent with a lot of Greco-Roman features to appease his his clients. But um, by by 20 BC, it was already dedicated. But according to the Gospel of John, they spent all the way up almost to the time of its destruction in AD 70, fixing this, refurbishing that, remodeling that, adding things. So that's why when you come to the Gospels, uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, it tells us that Jesus, who didn't live in Jerusalem, lived in Nazareth, is coming only three times a year to the temple uh, a Jewish observance, and his disciples who lived in the area are pointing out him to the new construction of the buildings. And that's when he says, not one stone you see here will be left upon another. But the, the point is that here, uh, Herod built this. It was there when Jesus was born, and he was dedicated in that temple, uh, but it kept on going. Yeah. But the, there was no ark. That was... And no yeah, so we're talking with Dr. Randall Price, worldofthebible.com, World of the Bible Ministries, and uh, really one of the world's experts from a biblical worldview on the subject of the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, I, I, that passage in Matthew, Matthew's account anyway, Matthew 23 and 24 there, has always fascinated me because uh, the disciples, when Jesus pointed out, first of all, you've got in one of the other gospel writers, as you said, you've got the disciples pointing out how magnificent the temple is, and isn't this great, Lord? And look, you know, look at the latest. And of course, they they're saying that in the context of thinking he was going to take the the throne at any moment. Uh, and then he then shocks them by saying, "Well, look, not one stone's going to be left another upon another. This, in other words, this temple is going to be destroyed." Well, that really got their attention, and so then they ask, "Well, then when is all this going to happen? What will be the sign of your coming?" And he gives the famous. Olivet Discourse, his his sermon not very many days before he was betrayed and arrested from atop the Mount of Olives, and part of that sermon is to talk about his return, which he then describes as coming in power and great glory, right? Because that's when, when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation and ultimately takes the throne in the in, in Ezekiel's temple, uh, that's when the Shekinah glory will return. Am I right? You're right. And in that all the discourse, the temple is sort of the dividing point uh, in this period that the Olivet Discourse describes called Daniel's 70th week, or a period we call the tribulation. So it separates the tribulation from the great tribulation, uh, Matthew 24, 15, when it talks about the abomination that makes desolate standing in the holy place. Mm. Because if you read Daniel, who re relates this in Daniel chapter 9, it's in relationship, I think, to the Ark of the Covenant. And, and Paul will build on that with a statement in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verses 3 and 4 about that. So yeah. that kind of gives us that future focus. And so, you, so, so yeah, that, let's get into some of the eschatological implications of the Ark of the Covenant. So uh, when the Antichrist desecrates the temple— he the ark has it been re, uh, uh, discovered and and placed in its spot there in in the uh, in the tribulation temple the antichrist temple by that point. 
Yeah, that's implication. We don't, there's nothing that directly says that. Uh, but in Daniel, when it talks about the abomination that makes desolate, and it says on a wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate. I've related that wing. Some people make it the pinnacle of the temple. Some people do other things. A wing, kanaf in Hebrew, it's like the wing of a bird, but it means, um, but in this case, I think it means, in this case, the wings of the cherubim. Uh, one reason for that is when we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 3 and 4, it talks about the man of sin, the man of lawlessness. It said he will seat him, he exalts himself above every God and, and so-called God and object of worship. So that's one key, object of worship. Mm -hmm. And two, it says he seats himself in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. Mm -hmm. Well, if he does that, how is God displayed in uh, in the past within the temple? Always the Shekinah glory, the presence of God was resident at the Ark of the Covenant. So I think Paul understands that he's he's tying together the whole idea of the abomination of desolation, the man of sin and lawlessness, the statements Jesus made about that uh, relating to the time before his coming. Uh, in fact, that's the signal event that causes Jews uh, in Israel uh, and especially in Jerusalem and the area of Judea to flee. That That is the signal event that says, you know, this unparalleled time of tribulation is coming. So when we look at this, um, if, if, in my opinion, what causes the temple to be desolate is the fact that that pollution happens at the very place where God's presence is, drives that presence out. And so mm -hmm. it can't remain. What, um, and then when it's restored, you, according to all the Jews who plan to rebuild the temple, they say we cannot rebuild the temple without the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark uh, is the very reason we built the temple in the first place. And we're, if God's going to return, that's where he's going to return. Now, from their perspective, the ark never left the temple, never left the place. That gets into our theory of where it probably was during all this time, because obviously we're talking now about uh, a temple with a restored ark. Where has it been? Uh, you know, how did it get there? Right. So just to clarify, so we had the tabernacle in the wilderness, then the Solomon's temple, then Herod's temple, the second temple. That's the one we're talking about now. That's the one, uh, no, that's the one that got destroyed in 70 AD. And then you, where there's going to be a third temple, a uh, physical temple that is built in uh, the tribulation period or in advance of the tribulation period, but one for the Antichrist uh, to inhabit where he he makes desolate uh you know as we just described uh so you said that that desecration sort of uh you know leads the the glory of god to depart has it come back by then or will it not come back because i my understanding is uh it, it, you know it won't come back until christ comes back so uh so basically it just right. it, it it defiled that area where that that they where they're waiting on the return of messiah is that a good way to say it yeah i think that uh god won't return his presence until he has the restoration of national israel complete uh until he's finished with his judgment of uh shall we say 
both Israel and the Gentile nations, and he's he's seated on his glorious throne. Yeah. Then then the the final temple Ezekiel describes is built, and then it says in Ezekiel forty three verses one through seven the return of the Shekinah. So that's the order in which we see things. Now I'm mentioning Orthodox Jewish organizations today who have plans to rebuild the temple. They started those plans back in 1987. Uh, they have been moving forward slowly. They're at a place now where all the, the objects of worship, the implements that were in the temple that were allowed for the divine service, that's all been completed. The one thing they lack, of course, is the Ark of the Covenant. Hmm. But they think that they can find that. They think they know where it is. So if all that's... Right. If that's the case, then they say we have to find that first, then we can build the temple, and then they believe the temple they build will be the final temple and God's presence will be restored. Um, it's a different in theological perspective because, when they don't look at the New Testament and they don't look at some of their promises in the Old Testament in the same timeline we do. Right. So, and then uh, Ezekiel's temple, Haggai tells us the glory of that temple will be greater, you know, than, than any other, right? So, all right. So the, the $20 million question, we've kind of surveyed the, the beginnings of the Ark of the Covenant with God's instruction of Moses on the Temple Mount. We've, uh, and by the way, real quick, what is inside the Ark, or according to the Bible, what, what artifacts were inside the Ark? Well, we don't have to guess at this one. We're, we're told uh, in the Old Testament about this, but in Hebrews chapter 9, we have the author also explain what was there. And he says the fragments of the original tablets of the broken Ten Commandments, broken because of Israel's sin, then the restored tablets, because God is gracious, and, you know, grace is greater than all our sin, and so he restores these tablets, and they're in there, and then there is a contest against the established priesthood in the time of Moses, and the, the way that challenge is met is God says, put your staff, the symbols of your authority, here at the entrance to the tabernacle, come back in the morning, and he finds that one rod, uh, one of these staffs, the rod of Aaron, who God designated as high priest, has, has actually come alive and blossomed, and because of that, that made him the man of God's choice, just re reaffirmed that uh, choice. So that was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And then finally, Israel was sustained during the 40 years of its discipline and wandering the desert by a food called manna. Uh, simply means, what's this? That's, that's you know, manna. But, I've, had a, uh, I've had a few meals like that. Yeah. <laughs> And, and Israel's, you know, it tasted like honey, and it was kind of like coriander. They they describe what it's like, but God provided. Every day they came out, and it was there waiting for them. That's the way God treats us in life, grace. He provides for us. We don't provide for ourselves from, from our salvation on through to the end of our life. Yeah. But uh, so a remnant of that manna was put into a pot and also put in the Ark of the Covenant. All three of these objects are... Uh, demonstrations of man's sin and of God's gracious provision. And mm. when they're in that box and then the blood is put on top, it's again a picture that our sin is covered, our sin is dealt with by a gracious God who cares for us. And those things, um, when you mention that verse in Haggai uh, that talks about the greater glory in the future, the rabbis would say that the, the, the first temple was greater 
in the second temple because it had five things the latter did not. And that Ark of the Covenants one, pot of manna, and they go through the list. And those are things that, and the Shekinah glory. So they, they think those things will be restored in the future, else it could not be greater. Hmm. Hmm. See, it has yeah. to at least be as great as the first temple. And it has to be greater than the second temple they're talking about, which is actually Zerubbabel's temple that was built when they came back from exile. Harry the Great uh, took that down and and rebuilt it, but we call it a we call it a second temple, not a third temple, because the sacrificial system wasn't interrupted; it just went on. Right. Yeah, but, that's what I was kind of alluding to when I talked about a couple hundred years. Zerubbabel had started building it. Herod just sort of you know took over and 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 re you know built on top of the same orchestra the period of the second temple right correct right first phase second phase yeah yeah exactly so um so real real quick before we get to the 20 million dollar question i i can't help but but think about in this present age which is an age at which according to the bible god has temporarily set israel aside he's doing a new work called the church which was a mystery ephesians chapter 3 Jew and Gentile in one body. And of course, when we see the ultimate Lamb of God um, paying the sacrifice, atoning work for the sins of all mankind, we saw that veil in the temple that was uh, torn in two, uh, symbolizing a new and living way that was opened up for us, as Hebrews chapter 4 talks about, so that in this present age, we we no longer have to go through uh, a priest and, and who, who alone can go into the Holy of Holies and so forth. We can come boldly before the throne of uh, grace. And, and I'm going to be sharing a message uh, a couple of times on the road here when we hit the road for some upcoming conferences uh, that talks about and demonstrates God's grace from Genesis to Revelation as seen through his chosen nation, uh, Israel. Israel's uh, is all about God's grace. Sometimes we mistakenly think of grace as a New Testament concept and, you know, law as an Old Testament concept, and certainly grace is, is high definition, and there's no greater picture of grace than the atoning work of Christ, but it, from cover to cover, it's all about grace. Grace is the prevailing theme of Scripture, so, um, and that's, you know, grace means free gift, and as you so eloquently described there with the symbolism of the uh, ark, uh, you know, anybody from Adam forward who hopes to be made right with the Holy God can only uh, do so by the grace of God. It's It must be received by faith. It's a gift. Like all gifts, it has to be received. You you can't, it's not forced upon you, but it is uh, absolutely free. That's what grace is all about. So, so, so here we are, we're talking about the end times and the coming of the Lord and all of this stuff. Where is the temple? Where is the Ark of the Covenant at this point? Now, let me just say real quick, uh, the difference between now and then or now and the past is that Shekinah glory, the presence of God. Uh, God is not on earth. He's in heaven. And mm -hmm. so there's a difference uh, spatially and in terms of our relationship. So we have a very spiritual approach toward him. Uh, but when his presence returns, as it was in the Old Testament, and the temple was built, uh, now we have a very different situation. God is on earth, and you approach him that way. So all of these various uh, re requirements of holiness and priesthood and things are necessary once again.
Amen. Yeah, that that's a point that can't be, you know, uh, overstated. I mean, it's uh, people often ask, why is the sacrificial system and those types of things, why are they reinstituted in the millennium? It has to do with this, the the, the localized presence of God. And, and it's a powerful thing. I mean, think about the Mount of Transfiguration, which was prefiguring the, the kingdom and the temple. They, those disciples, Peter, James, and John, they fell flat on their face in the presence of uh, the glory of God. So yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, and people have to remember, too, just because things are symbols. By the way, the ark is never called a symbol of anything. Uh, Hebrews 9 moves on to the tabernacle being that. But symbols don't mean they don't have reality and they don't have continuing validity. Mm. They, they just symbolize something. It doesn't mean that they're wiped away or they're a shadow or a type that uh, can be dismissed. And that's a difference we have with people who read the scripture strictly from an allegorical or spiritual perspective. Amen. Okay, go ahead. With the Ark of the Covenant, uh, it disappeared, it, it, or, you know, we we lost track of it, or did we? That I guess that's the question. And where is it? So this is the thing of Hollywood and the movies and all of the intrigue and various people today who still you know, are trying to find the lost Ark. Um there is the question, was it lost, stolen, or destroyed? We have one of some of my books deal with all of the historical questions there. Um, certainly it was lost in the sense that we don't have it and most people don't know where it is. Uh, it was not destroyed because there's no record in the scripture of its, of its destruction. The temple was destroyed. Mm -hmm. All the vessels that were of value were taken by the Babylonians to the temple in Shinar and uh, Daniel chapter 5 has a picture of all these being brought out at one point in a libation uh, that uh, Belshazzar is doing in a garden party to mock the God of Israel. We say, we, we conquered him. He wasn't strong enough. These are the vessels that used to serve him. They now serve us. And that's when the hand of God appeared and, and his kingdom was ended. Uh, we have Ezra mentioning 5,400 vessels. Uh, he doesn't, he just gives that number inventory but he goes on to talk about uh, the uh, these the types. So we have bowls, and we have all these serving vessels. Ark of the Covenant's not mentioned. Hmm. It didn't make it to Babylon. If it had, it wouldn't have been destroyed. It had been put in their temple as an object uh, like it was with the Philistines, to, to put in the temple of Dagon. You know, simply to be mocked and to be a symbol of our victory over Israel. Uh, so it, it didn't get removed from Israel that way. It wasn't destroyed by anyone. And then, so we could take stolen away too, because there are different invasions of the temple that we talk about in the Bibles of the first temple, when after it's built and the ark uh, we know was there, but it never mentions it being taken away. And since this is the primary thing that uh, brought God's, kept God's presence with Israel and uh, regulated so much of what they did in their worship and certainly the Day of Atonement. If that had happened, you know it would have been mentioned in the Bible. And there's silence on this. Mm. We have one passage, though, that's interesting. Uh, we come to the post-exilic period, uh, and this is with King Josiah. And it's mentioned in Second Chronicles chapter 35. Uh, here in... Uh, Verse two, it says he he is he's restoring the temple. There've been a lot of uh, shall we say 
just spiritual decline over a period of time, a lot of, of ruin and uh, neglect to the temple. So he is a reforming king, and so he restores it. It says he set the priest in their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of the Lord. In verse 3, it says, he also said to the Levites who taught all Israel and who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It will be a burden on your shoulders no longer. Now serve the Lord, your God, and his people. Well, that's a kind of a cryptic statement. I mean, in other words, it wasn't in the temple because Manasseh had polluted the temple, put a false idol in the temple. So apparently the priest had removed the ark before that happened. So now they're carrying it around from place to place. We don't know where. Um, it just simply says it won't be a burden on your shoulders. So, because that's how it was transported. Yeah. So the implication of this is we have uh, Jewish commentary on this going back uh, before the first century. Okay. Even, even way back. Uh, that mentions this, and they say this implies that there was a hiding place beneath the temple itself. We know beneath the temple there's all these chambers, all these rooms, uh, that one of them beneath the Holy of Holies was a place where the Holy Ark would have been stored. Certainly this would have been a thought, because once you have a nation, you have a king like other nations, you're going to be invaded like other nations, and you're going to have to go to war. And so if there's a violation or a threat in the temple, you need to safeguard the, the Ark of the Covenant. So perhaps just like we do uh, with our Constitution, lower it down somewhere, uh, whatever, they, they have the same idea. And that's where the, the priest had it. And they were, and so they carried it down there. And if they did something with it, we don't know, but it was in a hiding place. And then he says, bring it back and restore it to its rightful place in the temple so that things can function. All right, so that, that's something. I mean, it didn't leave Israel. It was in the care of the priest. It was hidden away. Uh, we know that that, as we come toward the very end, Hezekiah, who is now the grandson of Manasseh, uh, has some very foolish things. He, 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 he's given 15 more years of life, and he calls these Babylonian emissaries in pretty much to show them the treasures of Jerusalem, how great we are. I think he's trying to probably get them off his back, make some kind of, uh, you know, financial thing that so they don't have to pay tribute, whatever it may be. And they see all these treasures. And Isaiah comes to him and says, you've shown them all these things. One day they're going to come and take these things away from here. Hmm. So you have a clear prophecy that these things could be taken away. And you know, the priest safeguard them. And so the idea is that, about with Josiah here and others, Josiah is killed after this. And now we have uh, a situation in which things just go from bad to worse. You have three invasions of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. First, they take Daniel and everybody away who are could possibly, you know, contribute something in resistance to the Babylonians. And then and that was in uh, 605 BC. In 589 BC, they come and uh, attack again. Uh, and then in 586, they come and destroy. Well, with all that kind, with all those warnings, you know, not only just the prophecy, but also fulfillment of the prophecy in stages, the priests certainly had plenty of time to take the Ark of the Covenant and put it in a hiding place. 
And the fact that we have an absence of any information about what happened to Israel's most valuable treasure, the place where God's own presence dwelt, uh, is is very interesting. So uh, all we know is that it apparently will reappear in the future. Uh, there's one passage in Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, when it says, um, I didn't pull that one up, but let me grab it real quick because it's a, it's a pertinent question, and it makes some people, um, some people are confused about it. But here, real quick, guys. Um, you'll see, in my opinion, trying to get the time of it, in uh, verse, let's look at verse 17 first. Uh, Jeremiah 3, 17. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem for the name of the Lord, nor should they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, blah, blah. We know that to be the time of the restoration of the millennial kingdom. So the verse just before this says, and it shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land. Okay, this seems to be that same time period. Declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they, and here's the crucial word, it's translated in my New American Standard, miss it, nor shall it be made again. Uh, uh, and then it says at the time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. Well, here's the issue. When you come to Ezekiel, he talks about it being the footstool of his feet when he when the glorious present returns. That's the term used for the Ark of the Covenant. They seem to almost be dismissing it here. I think it's just the opposite uh, because the term they use, uh, it, in other words, the Ark for all this time period had been something of concern out of mind when what happened to the ark we need the ark it's important and now they'll no longer do that mm. because it's been restored in the term where it says nor shall it be made again literally the word in hebrew it's lasot it's it's the word to be it's the word to make or to use and what's interesting um or to do to do to make to use something like that uh and so uh, asa, you know, the, the term used for create, even creating man or creating woman more than man in this case. But when you look in, in the use of this term in Leviticus, where it talks about them using the ark, that's the term they use, use in terms of performing this, things like that. So I think what's happening here, they'll not use it in the way they used it previously, because now we're under the new covenant, not under the old covenant not going to bring blood of atonement at the day of atonement or it's not going to be a witness against israel things from the past will be changed in the future but it doesn't mean the ark necessarily is not there so that's the way i handle a passage in some of my books i try to give a little more details so um, if you talk about orthodox jews they think they've located the spot where the ark sits beneath the temple um but there's no temple today there's a Dome of the Rock, a Muslim structure, but they believe, based on some archaeological information we have, where the first temple sat and where a place called the Pen of Wood was. You go to 
uh, one of the tractates of the Mishnah called Shekelim. In Shekelim 6, uh, 1 through 2, it's also in Tractate Yoma, various places. This is all ancient commentary on uh, certain practices and things going on in the Second Temple period. And it tells us that when the priests were assigned to, to take the wood for the sacrifices, they there was moldy wood that was good wood. They were separating this. And one of the priests uh, saw beneath the piles of wood in this place called the pen of wood, the floor tiles were obviously different. Something about them indicated there was a passage beneath. And he went to tell his fellows what he had discovered and it tells us he was struck dead in mid-sentence, lest he reveal the hiding place of the ark. Wow. Well, this is a Mishnah, right? Yes. Uh, Mishnah Tractate Shekelim. It's also repeated in Yoma. In Yoma, it says fire came out. <laughs> but whatever the place, uh, it's the same, just different description. But the idea is that Jewish tradition will say that the ark never dis it disappeared but it was never out of Jewish control. And there was one pastor of the priesthood who knew where this was. They've kept the secret safe. It was hidden beneath this. When the right time comes, when Israel has access to the Temple Mount again, politically it does not now. It's impossible to do that. Maybe out of this current Israel war uh, and the control over the Palestinian Authority, which looks like it's going to be necessary, uh, despite what the world thinks, if you get to the place where it's world versus Israel, Israel will do whatever it needs to do. It may come to the place where the control over that holy site long sought for is in Israel's hands. And if it is, then they they think they can rebuild the temple, find the ark, put it back in. It's all theory, mind you, because we have no real evidence. But these this is the the inferences or the the slight evidence we have in scripture and in history that makes it makes believe it may be possible. Wow. I mean, so it, yeah, the details of how we get from point A to point B are theory, but we absolutely know without question that the temple is going to be rebuilt. Uh, the ark is going to be, you know, once again, put there. Christ is going to reign from there. So I think we can conclude with certainty that wherever the ark is, it's not been destroyed, right? We, we know that. We can also conclude that though it may it's not really lost. It may be hidden. It may somebody knows where it is. Certainly, God knows where it is, right? So it may not be something that everybody knows where it is, but God knows. And 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 quite likely, as you said, this is where you get into more of the theoretical. But quite likely, uh, there are those within uh, the Jewish uh, hierarchy that do know where it is in a secret, you know, place underneath uh, the 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 Temple Mount there, and. You know, by the way, that that reiterates and reinforces why what's happening in Israel today is so significant. This isn't just another skirmish between warring factions. This is a battle for the very holy land of God. And, uh, you know, things are not going to be the same again. Right. No, no. I, yeah. No, it really is. This is where the prophetic significance comes in. And every expert like yourself that I've talked to, I've asked that same question. Do you believe that what happened when Hamas brutally attacked and tortured and raped and just, you know, came against Israel, do you think this is, you know, going to really kind of 
relate directly into setting the stage for the end times or will things simmer down and go back to kind of the way they've been since Israel became a nation in 1948 and every one of them says no I really think there's something different this time it is it is it's escalating and and uh, rightfully so Israel uh, modern Israel, which we understand it's they're secular, uh, they're not all believers, but they it is still God's chosen people. And in the same way that God was was orchestrating Israel's history in times past when they had wicked leaders, uh, sometimes wicked leaders, uh, he's he's using secular Israel's leaders today uh, to prepare the way for the future. And rightfully so, they need to wipe Hamas off the off the planet, and they need to defend themselves, and and that's what they're doing. Obviously, war is 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 terrible. There are you know collateral damage, things like that that happen. But as I've said several times, there's a difference between collateral murder and collateral damage. Hamas intentionally seeks to destroy and to hurt citizens and to rape and pillage citizens, innocent people. Israel is going above and beyond doing everything they possibly can to avoid uh, civilian casualties, right? Yet it's, yet it's Israel who is dragged to the Hague and accused of genocide. I know. Yeah, and I ran into some folks over the holidays uh, that are, you know, millennials and Gen Xers and whatever, and and they're all buying into the narrative. You, what do you think about Israel's genocide? And it's a complete lie. It's just, uh, it's just horrible. Uh, but it just shows you that God's word is true. Let God's word be true, and every man a liar. You know. How the world is lining up against Israel. Ultimately, yeah. all the nations of the world will come against. Jerusalem and Jerusalem. This whole thing really is about Jerusalem at the core. Amen. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Price, this has just been fascinating. I've just been sitting here taking notes and and riveted as you've kind of, you know, so succinctly and powerfully, you know, given us kind of the history. But I tell you what, these are exciting times uh, to be alive. And, uh, you know, I hope that folks will uh, heed the warning that today is the day of salvation. If you don't know the Lord, make you know, get right with the Lord. It's a simple matter of receiving the free gift paid for by the blood of Christ by simply trusting in Him. If you already know the Lord, today's uh, the day to get to know Him better, to stay in the Word, to to read about these things, and to to keep uh, your eyes fixed on Jesus, the Author and Finish of Finisher of our faith. Any closing thoughts, Doctor Price? Well, I would say that because of the times in which we live it by the way since the ark of the covenant dovetails with all of these events it, it's a focus on israel jerusalem uh, the attack on jerusalem in the future <clears throat> that we need to be looking uh, to god and to his word because his word says that he's about to return his son to this planet and uh more difficult days are coming but there's always darkness before the dawn. Mm. We can look for this blessed hope that comes to those who have their faith personally in the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well said. Well, folks, uh, please check out worldofthebible.com. Dr. Price has so many, many great resources there, and uh, you can check out his books. Again, he's written, I mean, 45, 50 books, not to mention others that he's contributed to. Check them out at Amazon. Um, but, uh, we sure appreciate you, Dr. Price, and, and everyone else. Thanks for listening, and tune in again tomorrow. Uh, again, we'll have uh, uh, Shane, our resident technologist, on tomorrow to talk about technological trends. And later in the week, we've got Pete Garcia, Alex Newman, and, of course, always on Wednesday's World Events Update with, uh, with Randy. So God bless everyone. Have a great rest of the week, and we will talk again soon.